couple of days ago, I watched the sun come up. The sun was a fiery, bright orange ball, a perfect circle of blazing fire popping up on the horizon. Within a few minutes, the sun had transformed from a bright orange fiery ball sitting on the edge of the earth to a gigantic pale balloon slowly ascending toward the heavens. But that's not what actually happened. It seemed to me that this was exactly what was happening, but it was only an illusion. What actually happened was this. The sun's not moving at all. Instead, the earth is rotating on its axis at an angle of about 23 and a half degrees. The earth is spinning on its axis at a speed of about a thousand miles per hour. Meanwhile, the earth while it rotates this way is also making a big rotation around the sun at a speed of approximately 67,000 miles per hour. So, if we're all tilted at a 23 and a half degree angle, and we're going around this way at 1,000 miles an hour, and the room around us is going around at 67,000 miles an hour, why are we all not sick as a dog? But fortunately, we're wearing our masks, so <laughs> we should be safe. Now, the illusion of the sun rising each morning over a flat earth seems to make more sense than the reality I just described. Illusions often seem more real than actual reality. And this is true not only in the physical world, but in the spiritual realm as well. Now, much of what we believe about God and the way he works is based on an illusion rather than a reality. So let's take the story of Gideon, for example. And uh, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges, and we'll find uh, chapter 6, this will be on page 205 of your P Bible. Uh, I don't want to read, well, I would like to read the whole thing, but that's going to be most of chapter 6 and a good section of chapter 7. So um, I want to start here at verse 11 and uh, read just a few verses and then skip down and read a few more. So on page 205 where it says, The Call of Gideon, beginning at verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth and Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abirazite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, almighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, 
Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Then Gideon goes on to explain why he is not qualified. And after that, he worships the Lord by bringing a, a goat and the broth and some bread. And then he goes and he worships the Lord by pulling down the altar of Baal and the Asherah that are built upon it. And that takes us, well, uh, then there is the uh, sign of the fleece uh, where Gideon is asking for confirmation that he's supposed to do what God told him to do. And then we get down to chapter 7, and here's where I want to pick up um, and continue reading. Uh, then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, uh, Jeroboam means, uh, you know, contends with Baal. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And then 22,000 let the people returned, and 10,000 remained. The Lord said to Gideon, People are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. And so he brought the people down to the water. The Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go every man to his home. And so the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. In the story of Gideon, we see him being confronted with one spiritual illusion after another. Now, each illusion seems to make more sense than actual reality. And as such, Gideon needed to be disillusioned about God so that he could think rightly about it. Now, normally when we think of being uh, disillusioned well, with God, uh, we have the dictionary definition of uh, disillusionment in mind. Now, the, the word uh, disillusioned as defined in, in the dictionary means to be disappointed in uh, someone or something and uh, then having learned the truth about that someone or, or something, uh, then you are you know, disappointed. Uh, you know, we all have presuppositions uh, about God. Uh, one of the common presuppositions is this one that Gideon had. If God is with you, then you really shouldn't have any trouble in life. 
Now, there's no truth to this belief, but, see, it's a presupposition which is really just an illusion. Have the illusion that as long as God is with you, nothing's going to happen to you. Uh, Gideon believed this. He believed uh, not only this illusion, but he believed several other illusions about God. You know, actually, Gideon's theology was based on illusions, primarily. Therefore, he needed to be disillusioned. That is, disconnected from his illusions about God. Now, it's possible that some of you are thinking something like this. Why do our ministers focus so much on theology? Why can't we just set theology aside and instead uh, concentrate on the practical matters of Scripture, uh, in this case, how God rescues his people? Can't we just skip the theology and, and get to the significance? My question, if anyone is wondering that, is if you don't know what it means, if you don't know what the Scripture means, how can you apply it uh, to life? You know, the problems that we need to be rescued from are, uh, I mean, we got a lot of problems in the world today, don't we? But, but they're not primarily political or economic or even health-related issues. Our biggest problem at the core are spiritual. They're spiritual problems. So how do you approach a spiritual problem without good theology? Well, you can, but if you do, you'll come away with even more illusions about God and the way that he works than you did before. And you'll be more disillusioned with God than ever. But what we need is not to become more disillusioned with God in the traditional sense, but to become disillusioned. That is to break away from our illusions about him. Now before I go on, I want to just acknowledge that trying to be clever with words like this can be dangerous. But I'm going to take the chance anyway, as I just did. Um, so I just want to tell you where I got this idea it, it came from Oswald Chambers Oswald Chambers wrote My Utmost for His Highest uh, best devotional book that's been written in English in uh, many years but uh, here's what he had to say disillusionment means having no more misconceptions false impressions and false judgments in life, it means being free from these deceptions. So uh, there are several major illusions that Gideon had regarding God and his ways, and as such, he needed to be disillusioned. And by the way, so do we. So uh, let's go to the first illusion, illusion number one. Well, I lost my PowerPoint. Well, maybe it will come back up. Okay. Illusion number one, as long as God is with you, you will never have trouble. Now, we've alluded to this already. We find it in verses 12 and 13. 
So uh, PowerPoint's not working. So if you still have your Bibles open, uh, we can look here at uh, verses 12 and 13. Uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted uh, to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Well, Gideon asks a good question, doesn't he? It's also an honest question. If God is with us, why are all these things happening to us? You know, Gideon is doing what uh, many of us do. He's looking at his theology through the lens of circumstances. Uh, that is, he is allowing his circumstances to determine his theology, what he thinks about God. It's all filtered through circumstances. We must never do this. Our filter, that which forms the basis or uh, it provides the lens for us to uh, discover what God is like is not our circumstances, it's his word. It's what he's revealed. But like Gideon, we tend to see our troubles as evidence that, well, God must have left us. And yet in his argument with the angel of the Lord, uh, Gideon points to his ancestors uh, whom the Lord delivered from Egypt. And uh, th did Gideon not realize that the Lord was with his people while they were in slavery and while they were passing through the Red Sea and while the Egyptian army was in hot pursuit of them? Was he not aware that the Lord was with them even though they were going through all of these troubles? Now, of course, we have the benefit of hindsight, so we can see more clearly in many respects. We, we also had the benefit of the words of, of Christ uh, who assures all those who follow him that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And yet the same Christ says, in the world you will have tribulation, meaning in the world you're going to have trouble. The illusion is that if God is with you, then you will never have trouble in this world. But the reality is that even those who follow Christ will have trouble in this world, and yet Christ will still be with us. So like Gideon, we tend to think that God's primary objective is to keep us safe and to protect us from troubles of any kind. And if you are having trouble with this illusion, uh, don't feel bad. The Apostle Paul uh, struggled with this as well. And uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, I believe it is, where Paul is talking about uh, a messenger of a Satan. I had given him this thorn in the flesh, and he pleaded with the Lord to remove it from him. We don't know what the thorn in the flesh was, which is it's a good thing because we can more easily apply it to us and, and whatever situation we may be in. But nonetheless, Paul had this thorn in the flesh, and he says on three separate occasions, uh, he went to the Lord and pleaded with him 
to remove this. Now, Paul was not just a regular Christian. I mean, he is an apostle, an eminent apostle. Uh, he's written so much of the theology of, of God. Um, and if this man is having troubles, we know that God is with him. And it really shouldn't surprise us that we might have trouble as well. But it's what the Lord said to Paul after these uh, three occasions. Paul just kind of got used to the idea that the thorn is going to be there with him. And so the Lord gives him some insight. And he says, this thing is from me. I am bringing this upon you so that you will know that my grace is sufficient for you. You know, we want God to insulate us against pain and suffering of every kind. But God uses pain and suffering to transform our character, to make us into the kind of people who can handle the problems that come our way. This was the vision that God had for Gideon. Gideon protest, I am too weak. I am part of the weakest clan of Manasseh. I'm not qualified. And so God could have come down. What everybody there in Israel wanted God to do is, you know, maybe bring a plague upon the Midianites, uh, maybe strike them with lightning, um, maybe do something filled with shock and awe uh, that would drive the Midianites out of the land and all they would have to do is stand back and watch God and be impressed. Sort of like you know, the sun coming up over the horizon and just be in awe and in wonder of what God has done. But God normally doesn't do that. He can and often he does. But what he does most often is that he works through people who know they are weak. So after Gideon gets through acknowledging that he is the weakest among all the candidates for this mission that God has appointed to, what does he do next? Well, he worships. This is the occasion we talked about last week where uh, Gideon tells the Lord, wait right here, I got a present I want to get you. So he runs home and he prepares a goat, a young goat, and he brings the goat back cooked. You know, we don't know how much time that would have taken, along with some unleavened uh, cakes, and uh, offers that to the Lord, and the Lord sticks out his staff, and the fire comes out from the rock and consumes the sacrifice. Now that was an act of worship. And the next thing that happens is that the Lord tells Gideon to go pull down the altar of Baal and the Asherah that are erected beside it. And so he does. That is an act of worship. Getting rid of the idols in your life is an act of worship. So we, we see worship displayed for us on, on two levels. One is, is, is that intimate a bowing in adoration and amazement and impression of who God is, which is much of what we're doing right now. But there's another dimension of worship, and that is when God is working in you and through you to get rid of the idols that are in your heart that are in competition with God. That also is an act of worship, and that prepares you for the mission that he has for each of us. So Gideon had to get rid of this illusion. God had to strip him of this illusion that 
You know, if God is with you, then nothing's going to happen to you. But reality says that you're going to have trouble, but don't be afraid. God will be with you even in your trouble. Now let's go to illusion number two. That is this. God is willing to share first place with other gods. In other words, Christ doesn't always have to be first. As long as he's on your list somewhere, I mean, he can even be tied for first or maybe second or third, but you know, when the AP top 10 comes out, uh, the, the poll is there and you, you, you see God is ranked number one most of the weeks, but maybe not every week, maybe, you know, something else is, you know, ranked uh, a, a little ahead of him and, and God is, he's fine with that as, as long as he's in the top 10, you know, he, he likes to be competitive. Are we talking about the real God here? Or uh, the, the God of our illusions. Now this is the illusion that the people of Israel had. You know, they, they worship God. They watched their favorite God at work. Uh, but they also had, I mean, there, there were other gods out there that they liked to um, take part in uh, worship of them as well. And... The, the truth of the matter is, is because they worshiped these idols, uh, they became canonized. Uh, that, that is, they became conditioned to the culture of Canaan that was all around them. And uh, they, they worshiped the same gods that the Canaanites worshiped. And actually they found the worship of uh, Canaanite idols to be more enjoyable than the worship of God. See, God required sacrifice. He required obedience, and he required their hearts. He, he, re, he required exclusive allegiance, total allegiance. But the people of Israel had the illusion that they could worship God, and they could also worship these idols, Idol worship in those days consisted primarily, of course, you know, they had the outward expressions of worship. They would bow down to these idols that they had created with their hands. Uh, but the way they lived it out was through uh, immoral sexual behavior. And uh, it involved a lot of encounters with uh, pagan temple prostitutes. And the idea behind all of that was, well, you know, when the gods see uh, people in, engaging in this kind of activity, uh, they will also want to engage in that same kind of activity. And the result will be uh, that the, the land will be fertile, the rains will come, the crops will grow, the herds uh, will reproduce, and uh, prosperity will come. And so uh, that's what they did. And the Israelites thought, no, there's no problem with this. Because they were also worshiping God. You see, it's sort of like this. On Sunday morning, well, they didn't have Sunday morning, they had the Sabbath. But on the Sabbath, you know, they'd worship God. But then every other day of the week, uh, they'd be out there idol worshiping. And they saw no problem with that. Do you think this is just an ancient problem among unsophisticated people? Uh, but now in our high-tech, sophisticated age, uh, we're not subject to the pull of idolatry anymore. You know, there's uh, the, the Gideon's generation was not the last generation. 
uh, to believe that you know, the practice of sexual immorality is fully compatible with worship of God. At our house, uh, we watch just a few programs. One of our favorites is uh, Blue Bloods, a um, story about a family of uh, police officers. And uh, Tom Selleck's character, Frank Reagan, on one occasion, uh, one episode, he spends the night with a woman he's not married to. His wife has died of cancer, but he finds this woman and uh, they hit it off. And uh, the next day, which is Sunday, the, the family at dinner cannot help but notice how much more vibrant uh, Frank's expression of worship was in church that morning. So the, the message I think that's being communicated uh, from the, the program is that immoral behavior, which is you know, kind of the religion of the age, is completely compatible with worship of God. In fact, it might also enhance it. Now that's the illusion. But the reality is this, that God does not share what rightfully belongs to him only with anyone or anything else. Worship belongs to God and to God alone. So God had Gideon take his father's bull and another bull, seven years old, uh, coincidentally or not coincidentally, uh, seven was the number of years that the Midianites had been oppressing uh, the Israelites. So uh, Gideon takes these two bulls and he pulls down to altar, the, the altar to Baal and the Asherah that's next to the altar of Baal. And God wanted Gideon and the whole community to see and understand that before they could be free of the Midianites, they had to be free of idolatry, had to be free from these idols. And they had to understand that the reason that they were being oppressed by the Midianites was because they were worshiping these idols. So again, what about us? Do we worship idols? Do you really see people you know, out there in the world you know, bowing down to statues that they have made, you know, idols? Uh, made of uh, you know stone or metal or or wood, uh, we we don't do that. Nevertheless, we do see people worshiping an illusion of a god that they have made with their own hands or fashioned in their own image. For example. You're bound to hear someone say something like this. The God I know would never allow people to suffer. The God I know would never allow evil to exist. The God I know would never allow bad things to happen to good people. Well, that may be the God you know, but that God doesn't exist. She or he is an image of your imagination, an illusion. And you need to be, we all need to be disillusioned from such a God, from such an image of what God is like. The real God is revealed to us in his word and through his son. 
And when you come to know him as he really is, you will be struck by his awesomeness, which will cause you to bow before him in worship and adoration. We owe such allegiance to God and to God alone. So God must have priority. He does not share the worship of his people with another. Now we come to the third illusion. That's this. You can save yourself with only a little help from God. Well, after God commissioned Gideon to deliver his people from the oppression of the Midianites, uh, Gideon went out and he raised an army of 32,000 men. That's impressive. And yet, it's nowhere near as many soldiers, uh, fighting men, as the, the Midianites had. You know, they had an army that couldn't be numbered and camels that uh, could not be numbered. But God thought Gideon's army was too big. Too big? <laughs> so he wanted to cut the size of the fighting force down. And the reason is found for us in chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. See, God is concerned that the glory would go to the fighting men and not to him and him alone who is really responsible for the victory that he is about to deliver. So uh, what they did was they had this little test. So uh, uh, the Lord instructs Gideon, go to his men and say, okay, uh, all of y'all who are really afraid, too afraid to, to go into this battle, uh, you're dismissed. You can go home. No questions asked. 22,000, over two-thirds of them, leave. And that leaves only 10,000. And then the next verse, whoops, wrong. Uh, I've already read that verse. You know, God didn't want his people to have the illusion that they could save themselves with just a little help from God. Now, most of it is what we provide. And uh, the little bit that's missing, you know, God just adds that and there you go. So the uh, Lord comes out and says uh, 10,000, um, that's less, but still too many people. So he had Gideon do another test, you know, have them go down uh, by the spring at Haran and uh, everybody get a drink of water. And God told Gideon to separate those who lapped water up like a dog from those who knelt down. Now the commentators are divided about uh, what it meant for someone to lap like a dog and what it meant for someone to, to kneel. Um, I'm not really sure uh, what it was, but at least one commentator uh, thinks that the 300 who lapped water like a dog were the, the least refined, the, the, the least civilized, if you will, of, of the whole bunch. And so when they're down there sticking their face in the, 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 the spring water, you know, like a dog, uh, they would look kind of, of, of comical, uh, uh, certainly not dignified. And God said, okay, these are the guys I want to use. The, the misfits, uh, the geeks, you know, the, the ones who don't really fit in with the rest. That's a, that's a possibility. But if that really is what happened, we can understand the theology behind it. Is that God is wanting to proclaim a message and saying, 
this mission, this victory is going to come about by my might and I can work through the weakest of people. In fact, I prefer to work through the weakest of people. And so from this story, we learn a vital reality that God's strength is manifested through the weakness of man. When the Lord came to Gideon and called him a mighty man of valor, Gideon was repulsed and he countered with the argument that he was incapable of delivering his people from the Midianites. And his protests were confessions of weakness. You know, my clan is the weakest of Manasseh, he says. I want to come back to Paul's thorn in the flesh just for a moment. You see, God wanted, Paul is in a weakened condition, but Paul wanted, I mean, God wanted Paul and Gideon to learn essentially the same lesson, that his power is manifested in human weakness. And so when we are at our weakest, God is at his strongest. That is, as he works in us and through us. The story of Gideon and the story of Paul and then the story of you and me and everybody else. God is saying that his saving power does not work when we are strong or when we think that we are strong, but rather when we are weak and we know it. The principle here is the, the basis of deliverance. You know, not only of the people of God in Gideon's day, but people in our day too. We cannot be saved if we think that we are pretty good already. And all we need is just a little help from God to get us over the top. Like maybe we're 95, maybe 98% good enough to be forever delivered from sin and its consequences. We've got 95% righteousness and we just need a little 5% righteousness from Jesus and that'll be enough to finish it up. Or maybe we think that we're 5% righteous and we need 95% righteousness from Christ. That's an illusion. The reality is we need 100% righteousness of Christ. Apart from the righteousness of Christ, we cannot see God. We cannot be accepted by God. We are accepted by God on the basis of the righteousness of his son, whom he gladly imputes to us. That is, he credits to our account because of his deep love for us, which was paid for by his sacrifice on the cross. All of that is credited to our account As, three, as Gideon's 300 men prepare to go into battle with Midian, are they going to feel strong and powerful? Or are they going to have their knees knocking just a bit as they wonder what is going to actually happen? Well, whatever was going through their minds, I'm convinced that they realized that they were weak and unless God intervened, they're toast. Let's wrap it up here. You know, the Israelites' greatest problem 
wasn't foreign invaders. It wasn't the Midianites. It wasn't the physical oppression that they were facing, nor was it the starvation that they were suffering from. The Israelites' biggest problem was their sin problem, their problem with continual idolatry. And we too need to be rescued from that sin. But we will not even realize that we need to be rescued from sin as long as we hold on to those illusions, the illusions that say, as long as God is with you, you shouldn't have trouble in life. Remember, remember Job as upstanding an upright man who ever lived. And the story was that God is pointing him out to Satan and Satan says, well, sure, yeah, blessing the way that you do. Of course he's going to praise you. But you take all that stuff away, then we'll see. So God lets him, let Satan take away uh, Job's stuff and his family, his flocks and his herds. And Job still praises God. Skin for skin, says Satan. Uh, strike him with disease make his body weak, uh, then he'll curse you to your face. So God let Satan strike Job with you know, those awful boils. And this goes on and Job's counselors or comforters come along and um, give him advice and counsel that really isn't helpful. And Finally, Job demands an audience with God. He, he wants a hearing in court. And here's how confident Job was. He, he is asking the king of the universe, you know, the, the, the judge of the living and the dead. Um, he's going to go to court against God who is the defendant and God who is also the judge. And he thinks he's got enough of a case that he's going to win. That God's going to say, oh man, I didn't think about that. Uh, you got a good point, Job. Uh, so here's the, the full explanation, and I'm so sorry that uh, I brought this around or brought, brought this about. When you read the story of Job, will you ever find the answer given to Job that he was seeking? Why am I suffering? You're not going to find it. You know what you find instead? There's something more satisfying, more comforting, more inspirational, more valuable than having the answer to your question of why do I have to go through this suffering that I'm enduring? And you know what that is? It is the presence of God. God revealed himself to Job in such a way that he knew who God is. When you know who God is, that is when you are disillusioned you know, from all those you know, illusions about who God is. Well then, 
you know God for who he really is. And when you know God as he really is, that's really enough. I want to close my sermon this morning by uh, asking you to stand and uh, we'll recite together the 23rd Psalm from the King James Version and the words are on the slides but uh, there's a particular uh, phrase in the middle of the Psalm that I did not highlight but I hope that you, you will highlight it in your mind when we come to it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let us pray. Gracious Father, may the words of the scripture through what we have read, what we have heard read to us, I pray that it may sink into our hearts, into our souls, that we may know you as you really are, as you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and especially through your Son. May we aspire to know you as you really are. What greater gift could we ask than that? Through Christ we pray, amen.